You're listening to this Sunday's sermon from Hope Church RVA. To find out more about Hope, plan your next visit, or support the work we're doing in Richmond and beyond, visit HopeChurchRVA.com. Okay, so I'm going to just say an opening word of prayer as we come to the scriptures, and we thought it might be meaningful if Ezra joined and uh, repeated the praying, because God speaks Hebrew, so... Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we come to you again this morning to worship you. Lord, would you speak to us and would you meet with us so that it's not an ordinary day. Would you move in our hearts to draw us into the life that's really life that you give us, Jesus? Each one of us brings our own story, our own background, our own hopes and dreams, and we open our hearts to you this morning. And now will you bring alive in our hearts the ancient and living scriptures, would you bring them to us, Holy Spirit? And we pray in your name, amen. 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 All right, let's give a hand to Ezra. Thank you, Pastor. See you. If you're new at Hope, we're really glad you're here. One of the things we like to say around Hope is we hope that this is a place where people come and we know that people bring their own unique story and you're in your own place, in your own life, and maybe in your own trying to sort out Christian questions. And we're just glad you're here. Bring your questions, bring your heart. We hope you feel encouraged by being here. So we're in a summer series we're calling Beholding Jesus. It's a long one for us, about 15 weeks. And we're about midway in. And this week, we are looking at the passionate Jesus. So we've looked at Jesus the healer, Jesus and the marginalized, Jesus the teacher. And today, we're looking at the passionate Jesus. And I like this idea that each week is like turning the diamond just a little bit as the light shines on it. And it gives us a fresh glimpse of the brilliance each time we just turn it a little bit. So... This week, we're going to look at an aspect of Jesus's passion for God his Father. And I think this comes to us a little bit differently than some of the things we may be used to as our general diet. We've chosen the word beholding Jesus for specific reasons. When you behold something, you in essence are smaller than it is. You see it as bigger and you have this sense of awe, and you behold it. Beholding something is very different than analyzing something. To analyze something is to place ourselves above it and to examine it and render verdicts and judgments on what we're finding as we examine it. There is, of course, a place to analyze and ask important questions about faith. But this summer, the heart and the window that we're trying to look through is bringing our hearts to behold Jesus 
the incarnate son of God who's come into the world. We've been saying that Jesus is different than we are. All of us live with three eyes, insecurities, idols, and identity deficits. Jesus doesn't have these three eyes. He doesn't have insecurities, idols, or identity deficits, which means we shouldn't be surprised when he does or says things that seem quite different than the way most of us would do it. He is concerned about some things that many of us aren't that concerned about. He's not very concerned about some things that many of us are very concerned about. We shouldn't expect to be, we shouldn't be surprised if we are occasionally perplexed as we see Jesus, this one who is without insecurities, idols, or identity deficits. The setting of our text is John chapter 2. It's after Jesus has turned the water into wine at the wedding at Cana. Says in the gospel that after that experience, Jesus and his family went down to Galilee, to Capernaum, their hometown area. And then a couple of days later, the Passover is coming, so they go up to Jerusalem. It's a little sidebar, but I think it's really helpful. When we use the words up and down directionally, we tend to use it like up north, down south. So when you see up and down, you're tending to think the same way. In the Bible, up and down is about elevation. It's not about direction the way we say up north, down south. So it says they went down to Capernaum, but Capernaum's north of Jerusalem. So if you're thinking, well, how do you go down to Capernaum? It's because the elevation is lower. And that's the way these words are used when we read the scriptures. Not that big a deal, but I think helpful contextually. Okay, so Jesus has come. He's in Jerusalem. He's coming into the temple courts. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and disciples, and they stayed there a few days. When the Jewish Passover was near, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and money changers seated at their tables. So he made a whip out of cords, and he drove them all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. To those selling doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a marketplace? His disciples remembered that it's written, zeal for your house will consume me. The culturally popular Jesus in our day is nice, he's meek, and he whispers God's love to all of us and how we long for this from him. In this text today, we see another picture of Jesus. He is passionate. He's intense, even severe. You almost wonder if the disciples whispered to him, hey, uh, that was pretty strong, don't you think? Hey, um, that's not going to grow our crowds or our church, Jesus. The measuring stick by which our culture generally evaluates Jesus, and I think Christians, is on the question of, is he nice? Will he accept all people and all attitudes and all behaviors? That's the Jesus we sometimes feel that we want. In the verses we're looking at today, that's not quite the Jesus that we see. So he comes into the temple courts and he sees what's happening there. He sees that the temple is being turned into a place of merchandising religion. 
In a sense, you just connect the dots a little bit. God is being merchandised. God is being commodityized. God, high and lifted up, God, the creator of the universe, is now being turned into something that is made into commodities and sales and merchandising. Note where it says that Jesus made a whip out of cords. It says in the Greek something like, he fashioned out of cords a whip. In other words, something like this had to have happened. He walked into the temple courts. He sees what's happening. He's deeply disturbed by it. He goes over somewhere and he sits and he starts making this whip. He's fashioning it with his hands. This would have taken probably an hour at least. This was not Harrison Ford and Indiana Jones pulling the bullwhip out from under the leather coat. So he's sitting there and he's watching and he's fashioning a whip of cords in the temple courts where in a moment he will come forth with a righteous anger that God, the beautiful, glorious God, is being reduced to a merchandising enterprise. You can't help but read the Gospels closely and realize that this whip of cords is the same language that will be used when Jesus is whipped and flogged, where in this instance, he is trying to remove the way that God is being sullied Three years later, a whip of cords will be that enterprise removing him. You can't miss that language. And so Jesus enters and he has this whip of cords and he is making a scene. There is no other way to describe it. It's anger, it's present, it's physical. He's turning over tables, throwing money changers, money all over the place. There is no way you could avoid the fact that this was a scene. It's the kind of thing that would have made people close to it jump back. What in the world is wrong with this guy? Maybe people off in the margins in the distance would have been kind of snickering and laughing like, who is this nutcase? But if you were close to it, the intensity of the moment would have made you quiet and it would have made you alarmed. In Jeremiah 7 and in Psalm 69, a few Old Testament contextual verses in Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah is speaking to the people of Israel. He says, will you steal and murder and commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods that you've not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we're delivered so we can continue with all these abominations. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers in your sight? Yes, I too have seen it, declares the Lord. In other words, what Jeremiah is saying to the people is, you say that God has delivered you. We're his chosen people. So that's all that matters. Now we can just do whatever we want. No. God didn't deliver you to fall back into the decadence and deprivations of doing whatever you want. God delivered you to make you a holy and beautiful people devoted to him like the light of the world. So we can read that in Jeremiah and sort of think in 2021, oh, okay, that was a bunch of Old Testament stuff. I'm glad we're not dealing with that. The current version of that would be something like this. Hey, Jesus saved me. I received Jesus as Savior. I've got his grace. Now I can do whatever I want. That would be completely missing the point of grace. It would be completely missing the price of grace. But it's that kind of thing. It's abusing the heart of God 
to say, I punched my ticket with him. Now I just do whatever I want and I'm fine. In Psalm 69, 9, we have this. I've become a stranger to my brothers and a foreigner to my mother's sons because zeal for your house has consumed me and the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. It's generally considered that this verse from Psalm 69 is the verse that is going back to when they say zeal for your house will consume me. Notice that Jesus says, I become a stranger to my brothers and a foreigner to my mother's sons. This focus of passion for God's glory has made even my family say, who are you? I become a stranger to them because zeal for your house has consumed me. And the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. The insults of those who have merchandised you and commoditized you and who I have spoken out against, now their insults, they're on me. But you note, of course, what we know now is Jesus is God incarnate in the flesh. So the insults are at God either way. I think almost all of us, I absolutely want you to know that I include myself in this, we have all kinds of competing things in our lives, competing for our highest devotion, competing for the lordship place. And depending on our stories, our backgrounds, our own unique biographies, our fears, our insecurities, our internal makeup, psychology, the whole rich ball of wax, these are unique for all of us. It may be money competing for lordship. It may be our children. It may be our spouse. It may be our vision of the future that we're holding on to. All of these things become competing gods, little gods, little G, idols. And when they're competing for first place and they're all sort of running at the front of the pack, our own lives become distracted and disoriented. And a deeper biblical idea would be disintegrated. You remember when we were talking about Jesus, the healer, that the idea of sozo, this Greek word, means to save and to heal, to make whole, to integrate, to redeem, to bring back to wholeness all the fragmentation of our souls that have been the fallout of sin. Our souls are made for a wholeness. And when we don't have that kind of wholeness, our souls struggle under the burden. We all have influences competing for highest place. Some of these influences are good things. You see, this is where it gets a little bit challenging. They're good things. There's nothing wrong with the thing. But when we make a good thing a God thing, it becomes a disintegrating force in our life. And what happens is we then experience lives that are disoriented by the multiple compass headings of these competing things. I say that, I mean, really honestly, I feel that, and I'm guessing we all do in various ways. One of the most common ways that we fall into this terrain is that we reduce God to a success tool. We have a picture of our lives, the vision we want, the control that we will place on it, and the success that we want. And for many of us, those visions will vary. They're based on the unique ways we look at the future, for some, it's business, others, it's money, others, it's relationships, others, it's family. And what we do is we reduce God to a success tool. His job is to be the tool that brings that vision that I have to a successful place in my life. Jesus won't stand for this reductionism. 
the glory of God stands magnificently in his vision and in his heart. You know, it's also really fascinating about this. You know, a scene like this would have made a bunch of people who might've been interested say, he's a wacko. I was sort of curious about him, but that guy's nuts. You know that the crowds would have been thinned when he does something like this. One of the fascinating things about Jesus, remember who doesn't have the three eyes, doesn't have idols, insecurities, or identity deficits. Jesus denies the popularity and the celebritization that is constantly wanting to sing a siren song to his soul. Jesus clarifies lordship in his life. And the crowds are not going to be Lord. And popularity is not going to be Lord. God will be Lord of my life. This is very countercultural for us. There are so many voices that are trying to get our attention to pursue popularity and pursue celebrity. Take note in Luke chapter 14. Large crowds were now traveling with Jesus. And he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Okay, what? <laughs> Large crowds are swelling. I imagine the disciples, Jesus, it's working. This whole thing, this movement, it's like spreading like wildfire. We got people, man. This thing is growing incredibly. And it seems just about the time the crowds are really getting big, Jesus comes out with this kind of statement. If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. Okay, the word hate here is tricky. The best way I can help you see it is consider that word to mean love less. If anyone comes to me and does not love less, his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters than me. Yes, even their own life. He can't be my disciple. And you note that Jesus is elevating the distinction of a disciple. You can be in the crowds. You can be part of the curious. But if you want to be a disciple, this clarity of singular devotion is what we're being called to. Hey, Jesus, look, when you set the bar like that, when you confront people with that kind of highest devotion that maybe their kids or their spouse or their success is an idol and they have to put that down behind you as number one, you're going to lose the crowds, Jesus. This is one of the remarkable things we see about him. He's not driven by crowd popularity. He's driven by the glory of God. How do you become a person like this without becoming a wacko, fundamentalist, weirdo Christian? It's an honest question. A person who pursues the glory of God like this with this kind of strength, but does not become the person nobody wants to invite to a party, ever. Here's how I think we see it in Jesus' life. To become this devoted to the glory of God and not become a wacko, rests on core intimacies. In Jesus' life, we see profound intimacy with God. We see profound intimacy with the scriptures and we see profound intimacy with people. So you see, if you pursue this glory without these intimacies, you become detached. You become someone who becomes a religious weirdo because you've completely lost touch with God, the scriptures and the Bible. But if all you do is pursue intimacies with people and lose touch with the glory of God, then things head in the other direction. We'll speak to that in a minute. 
Jesus is calling us to die to ourselves. Anything that is in our lives that we are putting above obedience to his lordship, he's calling us to put down as secondary. Eugene Peterson says, love is defined by a willingness to give up my will, a voluntary crucifixion. And Jesus, of course, will go to the cross voluntarily in time. Okay, so I don't know if you know this song. This song makes me laugh, makes me smile. I heard it years ago for the first time. It's a spoof parody about plastic religion. It's called Plastic Jesus. It's about people who kind of do this superficial religion and kind of use Jesus like a toy, who kind of keep him in their pocket. So for the sake of the song, I do have Jesus in my pocket. And I brought him here today. I think we're all at risk of this. The song goes... I don't care if it rains or freezes, long as I got my plastic Jesus riding on the dashboard of my car. Comes in colors pink and pleasing, even colors iridescent, shining down on me like a star. Okay, I guess you haven't heard it. But I think this is what we do. We make him a success tool. This is sports Jesus, who we pray to when we want our team to win. This is sports Jesus when we won, and we say, yep, Jesus helped me win. I guess we weren't thinking that there might have been Christians on the other team, too. This is politician Jesus. Hey, nice to meet you. Let me shake your hand. I'm a... I'm a Democrat. I'm a Republican. No, I'm a Democrat. No, I'm a Republican. This is the kind of thing in our day that I think Jesus is getting at. Turning God into something for our use and reducing his glory. So just for a little reminder, I'll leave him right here and see if he stays standing. Sometimes I think what is actually in our hearts is we'd like to sort of put a job posting out Job posting, looking for supreme being to make my life go as I plan. God figure requested, but knockoffs and idols will suffice as placebos if they give me what I want. You note in verse 16 that Jesus refers to my father's house. My father's house. To those selling duds, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a marketplace? Notice how personal it is. Notice how at the core of his heart it is. Notice he doesn't even use a less personal word, God. How dare you turn God's house into a marketplace? Uh Uh-uh, to Jesus, this is personal. This is my father's house. I was looking at that and I thought quickly about other places where he uses the phrase my father's house three times in the gospels. Maybe you remember Luke chapter two, when Jesus was about 12 years old, his family went up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. They were all leaving to go back. They got about halfway back up to Capernaum and they're like, where's Jesus? And then they couldn't find Jesus in the entourage. And then they go back to Jerusalem and they finally find him after looking for him frantically. Of course, his mother is exercised about this. And she says, Jesus, why did you do this? And he said, did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? 
In that case, he speaks of his father's house in a paternal way. This is my father. In John chapter two, in the verses that we're reading today, the glory of God is being sullied through the merchandising of the temple and Jesus comes out with a passionate, personal defense of God. So in this case, my father's house is intensely personal. In John chapter 14, the phrase my father's house appears again in a beautiful pastoral way. Jesus says to the disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you in my father's house. And where I'm going, there are many rooms. Three times in the gospels, we see the phrase my father's house. The first time from the heart of Jesus is very paternal, intimate, Abba father. The second time it's very personal. The glory of God gets to the center of my heart. The third time it's very pastoral. My father's house is the place of heaven and hope, and I'm making it possible for you to be there for eternity. So we're prone to keep Jesus in our pocket, but he won't stay there. He won't be a toy, and he won't allow God to be a toy. When we begin to look at Jesus closely and try to keep turning the diamond and beholding him, we begin to see a person who is both full of comfort but occasionally he will bring the offense of the singularity of the glory of God to our attention. The gospel is gonna cause us to wrestle if we are pursuing it authentically. I remember this so well in my own life trying to learn about Jesus. When I first came to some of these verses, I thought, whoa, I don't know if I'm doing that. You have to grow to begin to trust this Jesus enough to realize that his statements of exclusive love are also the expansiveness that our souls are so hungry for. So he brings forth both comfort and offense. And this is a challenge for us. But you realize, of course, that the cross is both, right? The cross is both profound comfort and strong offense. The cross is the place where we see most emphatically the grace of God unleashed. It's where our forgiveness is made clear. It's where new beginnings, new starts, and a heavenly hope are given to us through Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. The comfort of that, knowing that our sins are forgiven, your past can be, can be made new into a gleaming future as a son or daughter of God. The comfort of it is enormous, but the offense of it is also enormous. Because what it says is, if you are to say yes to this, to enter this truly, you have to die to yourself and say, it is no longer me who will be number one in my life. It is now you, Jesus. When I first came to apprehend that, I knew I'm not ready for that. It took me a long time to trust Jesus enough to say, I think I can trust you with that. The cross is both grace and death to self. And to avoid either one of them is to miss the essential centerpiece of the gospel. You see, if it's all comfort without any offense, we're just doing humanism. But if it is all offense without any comfort, then we're doing degradation. It's the two of them together. Eugene Peterson said this, this is an old quote. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. The side of Jesus we're seeing today brings that to light. 
So we look at Jesus and we follow him through the gospels and my best effort at trying to determine the clarities of his focus are two primary things. One, the glory of God and two, the advancement of God's kingdom. Jesus is passionate about these things. He will be inflexible on both of them. In Matthew 16, this is when Jesus was telling the disciples he's going to go up to Jerusalem and there he's going to suffer at the hands of the leaders. And Peter says, no way, we're not going to stand for that. Look at this exchange. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me and you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus says to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple, note again the clear category of a disciple, must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. This is a rigorous bar. But see, friends, I think that we have perhaps made such a plastic Jesus that he's too small for the hunger of our souls. A sober fear of God and his holiness is the same bigness needed to inspire our souls. Are we bored with God and his church because we've tried so hard to keep anyone from feeling this holy magnitude? I think when it comes down to it, deep inside of all of us is the desire for a leader who is good at the core and who is fiercely standing for that good. Yes, we want leaders who are wise, who are compassionate, who are understanding, who have equanimity and fairness. Of course, we want all of that. But at the end of the day, when things get pushed, you want a leader who stands for something. And when we look at Jesus, when things get pushed, we see that he stands for the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom. We see Jesus expressing a fierce love, a fierce love for God, but don't miss it. That fierce love for God is the same fierce love for you and for me. It's the same fierce love that will send him to the cross and he will go there voluntarily in splintered wood and splattered blood. It's that same fierce love that will leave an empty grave. And after that, he will stand with his disciples and say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. Beholding, beholding Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you to help our hearts come to this high place of your glory. And Lord Jesus, for each of us in the room, wherever we may be in our own sense of who you are in our lives, would you, Holy Spirit, walk with each of us and would you help us be able to open our hearts just a little bit to see you, Jesus, with truth and clarity and trust? Would you do that work in our hearts, we pray, Lord, in your name, amen.